2: Hello and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw and I am really excited because I've got, first of all, I think the most guests I've ever had on at one time and just some stellar people who I've had on the show and I'm having back and who are my colleagues. And I'm really excited to have them on the show for what's really an important topic. So I have back with me... Uh, who uh people who've been on the show before for various reasons. So Dr. Megan Costivas, who is here as the director of our P- Cardiac Anesthesiology Fellowship. Dr. Jillian Isaac, who listeners know really well, who is the director of our OB Fellowship. Dr. Kara Segna, who is the director of our Regional Anesthesia Fellowship. Dr. Mike Banks, who is the director of our Critical Care Fellowship. So we have... Oh, and Dr. Phil Carulo, who is, of course, the director of our uh, Pediatric Anesthesia Fellowship. So... We have these five fellowship directors because what we're going to talk about today is the state of fellowship in anesthesiology. It has changed a huge amount. We have seen the rate of residents doing fellowships plummet, and we have seen the uh, ability of fellowships to fill the fellowship slots that they have really go down. Now, I will say as a a residency program director, I'm very clear with my residents. I don't tell them that they should or shouldn't do a fellowship. I tell them that they should think hard about what's right for them. So the point of this episode is not to say that any resident out there is doing anything wrong if they choose to go straight into practice. But we really want to lay out for people both what things look like right now and what maybe some of the things to think about if you're trying to decide whether to do a fellowship in one of these specialties that we'll talk about. And while we don't have every specialty represented today because it's very hard to get that many people on an episode all at once, we will have some thoughts that the um, chronic pain uh, fellowship director uh, shared with us as well. So we're going to start with Dr. Carulo and Phil, I'm going to turn it over to you to give us a little bit of background on what things look like.
3: So thanks, Jed, and thank you uh, to all the other program directors here. This is uh, such a, a great opportunity to discuss um, on a large scale about what's, what's kind of happening here. And I think there's a story uh, to be told for all of us in the subspecialties of anesthesiology. Uh, we've all seen, um, residents as they rotate with us and you talk to them and they're like, Oh yeah, I'm really thinking PEDS or cardiac. And then you see them again a couple months later and you go, are you still thinking PEDS or cardiac? And they're like, No, I'm just going to get a job. And you're like, Oh, great. That sounds, that sounds awesome. Uh, so we're just wondering, like, this is happening a lot. What's going on? Is this uh, something that is happening at a larger scale or is it something we're just paying attention to more now that we're all uh, program directors? Um, but looking at the data, there, there's something really interesting happening in uh, anesthesiology. It's actually becoming um, more competitive. And a lot of the statistics we'll talk about today are just comparing what's been happening since uh, 2020. So, uh, the national, um, residency match program has data on the match that they publish each year. And in 2020, uh, anesthesiology offered 1,370 positions in the match. And as of 2023, that went up 1,609. So that's about 17% increase in the number of positions in anesthesiology. And of those 1,609 positions, 99.8% of them were filled in the match, which is an incredible statistics if you think about how uh, competitive it is. One of the other statistics when filtering through the data that really surprised me is that 12% of MD seniors and almost 30% of DO seniors who ranked anesthesia as their only uh, specialty choice, they they didn't match. Uh, That's almost a third of DO seniors that wanted to anesthesia didn't match. So it's, uh, it's interesting because we're becoming more and more competitive. And although there's not really a good way to compare... Uh, the competitiveness of one specialty to another, uh, the NRMP, they do have some information that allows us to kind of do a rough comparison. And so if you look at the number of um, applicants that you need to rank to fill a position, you can get a sense of how uh, competitive uh, certain specialties are. So for example, for anesthesiology, you only have to rank 4.4, 4.5 applicants for each position to fill it. If you compare this to orthopedic surgery or plastic surgery, they're essentially about the same. But if you look at all of the specialties that are in the operating room, anesthesia is about as competitive as general surgery or orthopedic surgery. And it's more competitive than neurosurgery, ENT, or plastic surgery. So it's becoming one of the most competitive resident specialties in the operating room. and That was something that was kind of surprising uh, for me to see based on the data. And in the last couple of years, we've become a lot more competitive. One of the things that um, is interesting to me is, is to wonder why are we becoming so uh, competitive. The average salary for an anesthesiologist in 2022 was $405,000 that's gone up about 7% uh, from a year before. And if you look at other incentive bonuses that anesthesiologists receive, uh, you're looking at an average salary for the year about $470,000. That's a lot of money. And just being working at an academic center, I think uh, we can all attest that uh, our salaries are going up uh, significantly too when we compare it just over the last uh, couple of years. What's also interesting if you look at uh, anesthesiologists and, and salaries that a lot of providers are doing locums work. It's something that I hadn't even considered when I was in training, but now up to a third of uh, providers are doing some form of locum tenens work. Uh, and there's also a national shortage of uh, medical and anesthesia providers. So the salaries are going up and the job security is high. And so despite there being a really um, – a real increase in the competitiveness of anesthesiology residency, the state of fellowship is changing, and it's not entirely clear why. There are record numbers of physicians applying and matching into fellowships as a whole. So if you look at the total number of fellowship programs and positions across all of medicine, it's going up, but the number of people applying into anesthesia fellowships are going down. One of the things that we can talk about which is kind of an an obvious consideration is like, oh, maybe fellowships are numbers are going down because salaries are really high and nobody wants to take that one uh, year loss of income. So just to throw some numbers, if you look at the GME data, the median salary for PGY-5 in 2022 was $70,000. And that's compared to the average salary of an anesthesiologist, which is about $405,000. So It's quite a a big jump when you're a CA3 and you're thinking about what's going to happen next year in terms of your financial situation. You can either do a one-year fellowship and maybe get a small salary increase, or you can get five or six times the amount of pay uh, taking a job as a generalist. So um, with this in mind, I think it's important and we all felt it was um, critical that we just talk to you about what's going on in our specialties, what it feels like to be educators uh, for our subspecialties in anesthesia and talk about how we're responding to try to increase value and to advocate for ourselves.
2: Great, Phil. Thanks so much. Super, super important to think about this. And again, I think what we all want is for applicants, for residents to have appropriate information at their fingertips so they can make an informed decision. And, you know, I'd say it's really tough. It's kind of – I often think of this like the reason we don't want um, drug reps, right, to be able to come into our hospital and offer trips to the Caribbean, you know, if you consider listening to their spiel about their drug is because – Even if you are someone who's very ethical and you wouldn't, you know, ever take a bribe, it's really hard to stay impartial in the face of a large amount of money being offered to you. And I would say that, you know, I think that's true here where it's really hard. For, and I talk to residents who struggle with this. It's really hard for residents to make a truly impartial decision without taking into account the enormous salary difference that you mentioned between what they will make as a resident or as a fellow and what they would make if they went into practice. And so while that may or may not be the right decision for them, it's really hard to think of it without taking the money into account because that amount of money is so impactful. Um, and so that makes it really tricky. But let's go around uh, the circle here. And just each of you would be great to hear your thoughts on um, kind of what your specialty uh, looks like, any thoughts you have on, you know, kind of what you tell applicants, what you would recommend, why one might want to think about doing your uh fellowship. not, And I don't mean that specifically here at Hopkins, but just in general, doing the subspecialty that you um, are a fellowship director in. So Phil, um since you're uh, on a roll, why don't we start with you? Um Congratulations. I know we just were incredibly lucky here to find out that we did fill our pediatric anesthesia fellowship. I wish that were true for fellowships uh, in pediatrics around the country. I know that it's not. And so I think it's really important to think about what's going on in PEDS. So why don't you give us some idea?
3: Yeah, uh, absolutely. So um, as a pediatric anesthesiologist, uh, you should consider doing a fellowship uh, if you uh, really enjoy working in a patient-centered and collaborative environment. I think one of the things you first notice uh, as a trainee when you're in the PEDS OR is how collaborative the environment is and how uh, friendly the surgeons and the and the nursing staff are. And how everybody's focused on the patient. It's a very, what we think, um, enjoyable environment to work, to work in. And, uh, I feel like our personal achievement and, uh, satisfaction in that context is very, very high. Uh, there's a misconception that you have to do, uh, full PEDS after doing a fellowship or that you have to take care of the most medically challenging or complex kids or only take care of NICU babies. In fact, most people that graduate PEDS Anesthesia Fellowship uh, despite there being a national shortage, they go into a mixed practice job. And so uh, it's also a nice way to balance out your education if you're considering either uh, going um, and doing a lot of international work or you just want to take care of healthy children out in the community setting. So uh, don't think you have to only box yourself to taking care of medically complex kids. Uh, Peds Ansthesia Fellowship gives you a nice, broad, uh, diverse skill set. It's also a really great time to be a pediatric anesthesiologist and to have a fellowship under your belt. Uh, it's uh, really high in demand right now. There are over 200 academic uh, positions for pediatric anesthesiologists. I think it's almost unheard of uh, how short the country is right now. And even more, if you have an interest in doing uh, PEDS cardiac or PEDS pain, there's even more of demand. Uh, for those uh, folks out there as well. And so if you come out of pediatric anesthesia fellowship training and you want to get a job, you can basically name your location and your uh, work practice. So it's a really good job uh, market for you. The uh, downside is that fellowships are really struggling. Uh, today was our match, and we were very lucky that we were able to uh, match a full class. But if you compare the number of applicants from 2020 to 2023, or sorry, to 2024, we've seen a 28% decrease in the number of applicants. That's quite a bit. And so many programs and many really great programs are not matching anyone. And so you have some states that just don't even have a pediatric anesthesia fellow in the whole state, and yet they have these children's hospitals booming with patients that need their care. So it's really tough time uh, to be an educator in, in pediatric anesthesia. And although there's a history of kind of why this is happening, one of the things that uh, we we can certainly attest to is that in the late 90s and early 2000s, we kind of artificially increased the number of positions for fellowships. Uh, we were way outpacing the number of applicants, but then something happened the last couple of years and applications have gone down even more. So if you read through the literature on pediatric anesthesia fellowships, you'll hear of this term mismatch, which basically means we overinflated the number of positions in academic centers and now it's even worse when you have less applicants. So I want to talk about some of the things that we're doing um, to try to respond to this. So our national organization is called the Society of uh, Pediatric Anesthesia, and uh, we're trying to increase awareness and advocacy for our specialty. So so now for the first time, trainees can get free membership. So medical students and residents uh, can become members for free. A lot of great resources for them to to get involved and to network and to learn about pediatric anesthesia. They are fully uh, funding and supporting uh, subcommittees that are focused on resident and medical student education. And for uh, those going to the ASA social event, uh, we're going to have a great or so to the ASA this year, we're going to have a great social event for trainees to try to um, just introduce you to uh, peds anesthesia. We also, um, as program directors in Peds Anesthesia, we are more connected than ever. We really have adopted the philosophy that uh, we care more that you're going into Peds Anesthesia than that you're going to our program. And so anytime we have uh, someone that we hear through Whispers is interested in pediatric anesthesia, we make the effort to sit down, talk to them, understand their interests, try to educate them as much as we can on the situation, and then ask them, where do you want to go? Let's help uh, help you get there. Um, at the Hopkins level, we really um, are, are building a program that can be dynamic and respond on a year-to-year level uh, uh, with the change in class size. We want to be able to have a, a consistent product that we can deliver. And so, we're really adaptable. And that's one of the things we're proud of. We have also instituted uh, this new component to our fellowship that uh, allows uh, fellows throughout that year to get a really immersive experience in academic anesthesia. And so we kind of market to them that if you come here for this year, you'll learn pediatric anesthesia. And also you're going to learn if a career in academia is fulfilling to you. So we have a whole uh, kind of um, elaborate plan to expose them to a variety of the opportunities that you have if you're um, – uh, a faculty member here at Hopkins, so uh, we're doing our best to to remain dynamic and to educate and show value to people interested in pediatric anesthesia. And so those are just some of the things that we're doing. If anyone has any questions, please become a SPA member uh, and and start talking to us through that platform, or you can always reach out to us uh, individually.
2: Great, thanks so much, Phil. That's really helpful. Let me ask you this because this is a question I'm going to ask each of you this when when you give us your your thoughts here. What do you say to a resident who says, listen, I'm thinking about doing pediatric anesthesia uh, fellowship, but I'm not sure what my career will look like, how it will be different with or without the fellowship, because I've heard that I could go into private practice and do kids. I could do pediatric anesthesia there without a fellowship. So what is the way in which doing this fellowship will affect what I can do in my career?
3: So whenever anybody comes to me and and says I'm interested in in a fellowship, I ask them, okay, let's think about how doing a fellowship or not doing a fellowship will will box you into a certain practice style. And so I kind of preface it and say the majority of what you're going to do where you work just depends on what job you have. And, you know, if you work at a place that does a lot of OB, you're going to do OB if, uh, whether you want to or not. Um, but if your goal is to do pediatrics and you're trying to decide if the fellowship is for you, I think it's important for us to talk about the value of a pediatric anesthesia fellowship. Um, one of the big things I tell people is if, even if you just want to do community healthy bread and butter peds, uh, you have to realize that you may not have good mentorship there. So if you're the only person that does peds and you have a question or, uh, you, um, have never done a case. You, you may not have anyone to, to fall back on. And so having a one year of intense training, even in a, in a four year anesthesia residency, it's, it's still adult biased and based. So it just rounds out your experience. So I tell them that it could be a really good thing for you and your future practice to have one year of intense, uh, caring for pediatric patients. Um, but I also, you know, am very honest with them. If you want to go and work in a rural setting, you don't really need it. Pete's fellowship, if you're just trying to do healthy pediatric patients. But if you want to work in an urban environment, even if you want to do bread and butter peds, you still may be competing with somebody who's peds trained. So uh, the other thing that's really important is where you train. Some programs do a lot more peds than others. I mean, there's like a minimum amount of, I think, eight to 10 weeks that you have to do. And um, if that's all you're leaning on for your whole career and you don't have mentorship, it, it may be hard for you.
2: Yeah, great points. Uh, you know, I think is it accurate to say also that if you want to do pediatric anesthesia in an academic center, you pretty much have to do the fellowship. Is that right?
3: That is the, uh that is currently what's happening. Now there are some really great big uh, medical centers there that are not like academic children's hospitals that will take you right now in this current environment. Just if you have peds experience, they would prefer fellowship trained, but any children's hospital is going to want you to be pediatric trained. Now, the exception, which I tell people too, which is important, is like some people are like, oh, I want to do peds and pain. I'm not sure if I need to do a peds fellowship and a regional fellowship or a chronic pain fellowship. And I say, if you, if you do your peds fellowship, some institutions at Children's Hospital will let you also do peds regional or peds chronic pain without those additional fellowships. They'll kind of work with you and train you because they realize that it's really hard to get anybody who's going to do two
2: additional fellowships. Great. All right. Great. Thank you, Phil. Um, let's move on to cardiac anesthesia. And Dr. Costibus, um, Meg, why don't you tell us uh, kind of the state of the state in uh, cardiac anesthesia and anything you want to want to tell folks?
4: Great. Uh, thanks, Jed and and Phil for arranging this. Happy to be here. Um, I have been the the program director at Hopkins in the Adult Cardiothoracic Fellowship for over five years now, um, and uh, was also lucky enough to do both um, my residency and fellowships here at Hopkins. Um, We, uh, about 2007 is when uh, cardiac fellowship in the nation became ACGME accredited um, and Hopkins followed suit in 2008 with the first um, fellowship positions that were ACGME accredited. Prior to that, you just did extra time, Um, but nationally, you know, When you're applying, fellows want to go to ACG mean-credited positions. It provides some um, standard of of training and curriculum. Um, We have now grown to, uh, at Hopkins, six uh, positions a year, Um, and that fellowship has changed um, pretty dramatically over even the last five years. Um, When I was a fellow, um, you know, several years ago, the uh, training was mainly based in uh, the cardiac or the pump rooms, the open bypass rooms where you went on pump. Um, uh, but I will say nationally, um, the, the one of the biggest changes in fellowship is uh, we are starting to see a dramatic increase in the volume of structural heart cases. Um, it, the structural heart, when most people think about it, they think of taber valves, uh, or transcutaneous aortic valve replacements. Um, and that's kind of where the country started, but over the years, we have seen a dramatic increase in other transcutaneous devices, valves, um, Mitra Clips, Watchman's, Lariat's, all, all of these devices. And, um, throughout the country, kind of historically, uh, cardiologists were the ones who, uh, helped guide the proceduralists, the interventionalists, to place these devices with intraoperative TEE. Um, but um, I think one of the big changes uh, in the last five years, in in our fellowship, and and we're starting to see more in the country, is um, providing that training for our uh, cardiac anesthesia fellows, um, and so they're actually guiding these. So um, it, it's a little bit of a change in in kind of the scope of fellowship. Um, but it, it we know um, more and more less invasive um, cases will continue to to happen as the technology uh, improves uh, with time. Um, In terms of the fellowship and kind of numbers, Cardiac Anesthesia Fellowship has historically been one of the more competitive fellowships. I would say right up there with chronic pain um, and from uh, the match process started in 2015 um, through SF match. Uh, and from about 2018 to 2020, um, it was the most competitive. Uh, about 20 uh, percent of applicants didn't match. Um, but um, as Phil has said, um, we have also um, seen nationally a decrease in, uh, in the number of applicants. Um, compared to the rate of programs that are growing. Um, and in this last year, um, or since 2020, there was a 17.2% decrease in the number of applicants um, in this last cycle. And the match rate actually went up from, like I said earlier, of 80% to 96%. Um, and several programs throughout the country um, went unmatched. Uh, luckily, we haven't had that problem at Hopkins, um, but um, these were reputable, uh, well-established programs that didn't match. So um, I don't want to call that a trend yet. We'll have to see what happens in the next couple of years. But um, it is something that we've kind of um, realized. Um, other trends that we've started seeing um, in fellowship are more and more applicants each year going and doing dual fellowships. So uh, the preponderance of those are uh, cardiac and critical care, doing a year in each. Uh, those are two totally separate ACGME fellowships. Oftentimes they overlap, however. Um, uh, and then this last year, um, Jillian and I, or Dr. Isaacs and I actually had a combined um match for a fellow doing OB and cardiac. So we've seen that. Um, uh, and so I think that trend will continue. Um, uh, for those who might want to know why, why would I do dual? Obviously you have to have interest in both those areas, but, um, we know there are very complex OB patients. We know, um, Uh, Cardiac and ICU oftentimes go hand in hand together, Um, and um, there are some academic centers, specifically I will speak to Boston, for example, Uh, both fellows and colleagues have told me uh, the work up there that if you want a job in Boston after cardiac fellowship, you have to do ICU as well. So there is a trend to that. uh, for those who don't want to do dual fellowships, um, and just do, uh, cardiac, there's, uh, no, um, we have not seen any issue in the job market. Um, I would say for Hopkins, for example, about 60% go into, um, academics or stay in academics. Um, and the other 40% on average, uh, will go straight into private practice. And this is throughout the country. I think we have, Fellows in 26 or 28 states throughout the country, so they they go where they want, um, and luckily um, don't seem to have any problems with getting multiple job offers um, after fellowship. Um, Going back to why we kind of started this podcast uh, and and Phil's uh, introduction and to the decrease, why why is the why is the number of applicants? Uh, for cardiac fellowship decreasing. I think that, like Phil said, it goes into the job market um, and and the financial uh, benefit of going straight out of residency. Um, I don't think cardiac is any different. Um, uh, One thing I I do want to bring up that is new to um, cardiac fellowships and cardiac training um, that may play a role in this in the future is um, starting December this year, actually, December 2nd, 2023, the um, will be the first um, ABA uh, adult cardiac exam, um, and this will be the new certification process. Historically, when you did a cardiac fellowship, um, the only exam you took at the end of your fellowship that kind of credentialed you, other than saying you did a, a certain number of cases, was um, the National Board of Echocardiography Advanced Perioperative ECHO exam, TEE exam. And so that was the exam that that residents or fellows took um, in July after their fellowship year. Um, And that, and as it stands now at Hopkins, that kind of credentials us to be a cardiac anesthesiologist. Um, How will this ABA uh, adult cardiac exam change the job market? I think it's going to take many years for us to see how that happens, probably, you know, 10 years down the line. Um, Now, most academic centers require you to have done a ACGME accredited fellowship to get a job. But there are smaller community hospitals that do basic cardiac where they might hire people that haven't done adult um, cardiac fellowship. Um, I think with this exam that now is going to be, you know, required over the next several years, um, you know, hospitals and surgeons are going to want fully board certified cardiac anesthesiologists doing their cases. And so I think it's going to take years for this to happen, but there will start to be um, that change in that dynamic. And if you if you do, um, if you you want to work in cardiac, you have to pass this exam and to pass this exam and sit for the exam, actually, you have to have done fellowship. So those are, I think, my main points. Judd, any any questions or somethings I missed?
2: No, I think that's great, Meg. Um, so I think kind of same and more or less, right, is what we discussed with Phil. I think you can go into private practice and do cardiac. Without a cardiac fellowship, though, you tell me, I think probably you're doing, if you're looking in an, you know, um, urban area, you're competing against people with fellowships, and you're clearly going to be at a disadvantage, you're probably not going to do really complex cardiac. And if you want to be at an academic center, you, you clearly need the fellowship. Is that accurate?
4: Very accurate. Yes. Big academic centers. Um, big complex, you know, tertiary questionary care centers, they're going to want you to do, um, an AC Jimmy accredited fellowship, 12 month fellowship. Um, but you know, I think, I think, like I said about with this exam, I think time will tell, but. Um, you know, hospitals and surgeons are going to want fully board certified. So and, and to take this exam, you're going to have to do fellowship. So I think even it may be small community hospitals. So so um, something we'll, we'll see what the trends are. Um, the exam, like I said, nobody's set for it yet. So we'll see what this entails, but um, changes to come.
2: Great. All right. Great, Meg. Thank you so much. Let's talk about critical care um, fellowship with Dr. Banks. Stay with us. We'll be right back. All right, and we're back. Mike, tell us what it looks like in critical care these days.
5: Yes, uh, thank you. Jeff. I'm, I'll be brief because I know we don't have a lot of time. and We want to get everybody else in, but uh, the Critical Care Fellowship uh, is uh, is a fellowship that's been longstanding. It started out as anesthesiology uh, and Dr. Safar, uh back in the 1960s, and critical care is basically caring for these patients with multiple organ dysfunction and helping them Uh, to recover and retain, go back to homeostasis. Um, the fellowships, um, since 2014, um, we've actually had more spots than there were applicants, but we saw an increase in applicants around about the time of COVID in 2020, where we went up to 199 or 200 applicants for about 200, 230 spots. Uh, currently our, application pool, pool dropped to its lowest ever uh, to 145 applicants for about 225 spots. Uh, so it's a significant decrease. And that's attributed to exactly what Phil spoke about earlier, that um, sh- the salaries are, are so uh, lucrative uh, coming out of residency program. But I would say that people who are interested in critical care uh, some skills that you get in, in being in critical care intensivist are one, uh, the skill of being able to, uh, be knowledgeable of all the different organ systems and being able to take care of patients with multi-system organ dysfunction. Uh, we also teach you, uh, ultrasound and a lot of programs are getting, uh, their fellows, uh, certified or, uh, board, uh, or eligible for, uh, Board exams, the National Board of Echocardiography, and uh, the, there you can uh, you be able to not only perform but also uh, interpret uh, your point of care ultrasound uh, evaluations. <clears throat> uh, other things that we are doing to make it uh, to make uh, critical care more uh, attractive: uh, the dual fellowships, as Dr. Costiva spoke about earlier. Uh, we have not only uh, cardiac and critical care, but we also have, uh, some want to go into neuro and critical care. And uh, we have one fellow that's going into regional and critical care. Uh, Dr. Sen will talk about, uh, regional anesthesia and, uh, there are others, uh, other dual fellowships as well, but, um, those are for people who see the intersectionality between the, uh, the two, uh, disciplines. <clears throat> uh, I would say to answer your question, you know, Ken Can someone out of residency do critical care? Uh, The answer is no. You'd have to do a fellowship. That's definitely, there's nowhere you can go without a fellowship. Where do most people, most graduates go, especially from anesthesiology? Um, I would say that majority, 80% of uh, fellows who graduate go into academics. Uh, It's just uh, the structure uh, allows, the structure of academic program allows for (laughs) it. more anesthesiologists uh, to go into your critical care. Can you go into private practice? Yes, I'd say a far, far smaller amount, uh, 20% go into private practice. It's just more challenging because you have to, uh, you're working half part-time or a portion of your time uh, in the operating room, and then you have another contract that you have to get for private practice to do uh, the uh, the uh, uh, the critical care. And in those situations, You're doing a lot of, uh, it's a kind of a closed unit. It's both medical and surgical ICU that you're taking care of these patients. Uh, I would say that in, uh, or as an academic centers, you're mostly in the surgical or some surgical subspecialty ICU, as opposed to um, uh, what you're doing in private practice. Um, I didn't want to take up too much time because I only have a few, 15 minutes, but hopefully that answers most of the questions.
2: Yeah, Mike, perfect. I think you hit on my one question already. So that's great. And um, I appreciate you taking the time. Let's uh, move to Dr. Segna. Kara, um, what do you want to add about regional anesthesia?
6: Hi, um, thank you so much for having me on ACRAC today. Uh, My name is Kara. I'm the regional anesthesia fellowship director, and I've been involved in fellowship leadership for about five years now. I can also be brief because regional anesthesia doesn't have a lot of data On our own fellowship we became accredited in 2016 and we just entered the san francisco match in 2023 but it's still all over the place around the country because not all programs decided they wanted to be ecgme because they like to hold on to their hybrid positions in order to allow for double fellowships like neuro or liver transplant at the same time as a regional Fellowship or just to allow for higher salaries. I know I myself purposely sought out Johns Hopkins in 2016 for their fellowship because it was hybrid and I was able to make 120,000 at that time as opposed to the PGY5 of like 60,000. So it really made a big difference for me personally. And it still does to this day for applicants. Also, with the SF match, not all fellowships were required to join, so it was extremely, in my opinion, as the PD and I'm and from talking to applicants, confusing. This first match cycle, as you had your in match and out of match, and people were being offered positions in the match and out of the. It was just everywhere. And of all the programs that did join this year, um, only 89 people chose to do the match for 144 positions. So there's it's no way we could have filled only 31 of 56 fellowship programs in the match. um, Sorry, 31 of 56 did not fill um, with our first match. Um, However, in 2024, we have more programs joining. So I'm hoping that this can help and we can develop more data on everything here at Hopkins. We do have an ECGME fellowship, and we, in order to allow for some flexibility for our fellows, we allow Moonlighting to help them supplement their income, which I have received feedback as a big draw for applicants to help them have more than a PGY-5 salary and turn down that competitive job for um, one year. I have found over taking care of many, many fellows over the years, five a year, that when they do graduate, before they even graduate, they're only three months into fellowship. They are offered extremely competitive offers, both within academics and private practice. Regional is extremely sought after, as well as um, the acute pain experience that we have. And they're not only getting big jobs with like $100,000 signing bonuses just for having regional skills, but they're also getting director roles. And I... um. I think that it's important that I I like the ability to work in the operating room as a general anesthesiologist, but also be able to do blocks for my super sick people that could potentially need ECMO and I can avoid it by avoiding GA. And um, I also like the idea that I can flex out of the OR and run and work on the acute pain service. So I can keep my days interesting. um, So I don't get bored because I'm one of those people that can get bored really easily. As I think in general, we can all agree that our patients are getting sicker and sicker. And with um, finely tuned regional skills, we are able to help many patients avoid GA. And I think that's why everything is so in demand. Um, I do, you know, we have a lot of residents here at Johns Hopkins. I know a lot of residents from other places. And I found that although you can graduate with confidence in your regional skills, if you do not find a job, that you can use these skills often. And I mean, often you will lose your confidence and you will lose your ability very quickly. And I now, you know, work with colleagues that have been out of residency for 10 plus years, for six plus months. And even the six plus month colleagues, are they don't have confidence anymore in their regional skills. And um, even former residents will call me from their private practice jobs and they'll ask me questions because, they 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 don't know, and I'm happy to help anyone that calls me. I'll never turn that down um I personally I work at a um, hospital I work at Bayview, and we have so many um sick patients and that my blocks are very high stakes. They have to work or surgery gets canceled. And I'm constantly thanked by my colleagues for not only helping them prevent GA and now having a a decent case that's not as terrifying to do, but also by my ICU colleagues because some of my skills, I can place epidurals in various blocks for trauma, and I have the ability to help thwart patients getting intubated. And that's on my APS service. Another benefit to doing a regional APS fellowship is that POCUS has become so popular, and even now with you know Ozempic on the market, we're doing these gastric ultrasounds, um, etc. And I found that people who do our fellowship, they just excel faster, and they they get all of these new skills down faster. If you do a fellowship that involves ultrasound, so that could also be cardiac, that could also be. I see, for example, even OB, I'm seeing more OB fellowships do um, at least quadratus lumborum blocks for their patients. So I've found that having this extra training helps you beyond even the specialty you're training
2: in. Great, Kara. Thank you so much. And it sounds like from what you're saying, similarly, you can in private practice do blocks without a fellowship. But like you said, a you're going to be under uh, much more demand for jobs. If you have the fellowship, you're going to be someone who might be in a leadership position in terms of leading a block, uh, you know, service. Certainly, if you want to be in academics, you're going to need, if you want to be able to do, you know, uh, work on the regional service or the acute pain service, you're you're really going to need a fellowship. So it's going to open a lot of doors, even if, you know, you could potentially go into a private practice and do some blocks. And then, as you said, even if you did that, you know, are you going to be confident? I can tell you that I absolutely I mean, I guess I've been out now for 10 years, but I certainly have lost all confidence in my blocks, right? And so uh, it's interesting to hear you say that even six months, a year out, people do. I'm not surprised because if you're not, if you didn't do the fellowship and you're not doing them, you know, to be, maintain that um, is really tough. So a lot of advantages, I think, to to doing it. Um, all right, uh, let's move to Dr. Isaac. Jillian, tell us about OB anesthesia.
7: Oh, uh, yeah. So I think OB anesthesia is maybe unique in the fellowships in that it has never been the most popular one. Generally across the board, we have about a hundred spots in the country and we spill, we fill about 50. So I think this has actually been an ongoing conversation with soap talking about why OB and doing a better job of selling it. And it's hard. I'm kind of at, at the tail end of a lot of really like amazing people who've talked about why doing their fellowship. And I, I always tell my residents that you should have a good reason to do a fellowship and stay in academics, whether it's, you want a leadership role, you want to be a division chief, you want to be a program director, you have aspirations to be like a department chair. uh, You really enjoy mentorship. I mean, for me, that's the biggest piece of it. I love to teach. I love mentorship. It's like watching children grow. You know, I feel like every year you take these new CA ones and they don't know anything. And then they do one month on OB and they are just so much more skilled and it's very satisfying. So I think that teaching piece, the uh, mentorship piece, and then if like research is your calling, you know, if you really want to be doing academic projects, you want to be publishing, I think academics is really the way to go. And I think specifically for obstetric anesthesia, it's a very polarizing specialty, right? So I think you just have to really like it. And I like it for the same reasons I actually really liked ICU. I, I liked am I'm not always in an operating room. I never know what's coming through the door. There are always surprises. I mean, there are diseases that I've never even heard of that I'm looking up. Women who've had uh severe cardiac disease, severe pulmonary disease. Like it's always a challenge. I like the team environment. I like that it's multidisciplinary. I like that I feel very valued in what I do. So for me, I think it's like the perfect match for like my personality. I did an MD PhD. I like all these things. And so I think it's a very unique specialty explore. And I do think it will help you get jobs. Like it will make you a little bit more competitive. Um I just wanted to touch base about why we think this trend is happening. I think uh, it was talked about earlier. So I have a unique perspective in that my husband's actually a private practice guy. He did private practice for 15 years and he just left his group to go do locums. I think med school costs is just going up and up and up. I think the average loan is like what, 350 dollars to $400,000 coming out of medical school. Student interest loan rates have gone up and up and up. And now you're seeing these jobs, like they're offering 550 dollars to $600,000 with sign-on bonuses, with loan forgiveness, Um, my husband who's doing locums, like he does a little bit of everything. He does some pediatrics, he does some, you know, OB anesthesia, he does regional and you know, it's very enticing, right. To like go out and chase the money and there is good money to be had, but I also think there is like that wellness and job satisfaction. And if you're just looking for the dollar, you might be missing that. And I think so much of our life and our career is having that wellness. And for me, It's about time off, but it's also about being part of a community and feeling like uh, that I'm important at work, that I'm valued, that I have friendships at work. And I find that in the academic setting. I think it's a lot harder in the private practice world where, yes, you might be making a lot of money, but you are a cog in a wheel and you don't necessarily feel like that value. So I think for me, those are all the reasons why after 16 years, I've still stayed in the academic realm. I I could easily go, right? Any of us could easily tomorrow be like, piece, I'm going to go, you know, take this $700,000 job, uh, $700,000 a year job. But that's not why we do it. And I think that's like my biggest piece of advice is look at the pros and cons of academics. And if that's really the life you want, because there are, there's a lot of value. You might not make the highest amount of money, but there's so much more to it. And, and that's what I really tell all my residents. And I think that's really all I wanted to add.
2: Great. Thanks, Jillian. It sounds like from a um, why do or what does it change for you standpoint? One, like you said, even in private practice, though, obviously, lots of people in private practice do OB, you are going to be a little more competitive for those jobs. And certainly, if you want to be in a leadership position in a private practice, um, you yeah. know, o, that does a lot of OB, that would be helpful. And then, of yes. course, in academics, I know here, you can't be kind of a full time OB faculty member unless you've done the fellowship, you can take some OB call uh, without it. But certainly, I think if you want to be able to have OB anest- academic OB anesthesia be a big yes. part of your career, you, you need the fellowship. And I think um, that's and,
7: one of the ACGME requirements also, is that you have to have your core faculty be OB anesthesia trained.
2: Yeah, I think that's right. Um I will say, uh, very similar to you, what I tell the residents, and I'm happy to share with anybody is, you know, I say, to if you can do it, just for a minute, imagine that there was no pay difference between your fellowship year and your, and going into private practice for the next year. Now, I know that's not real. <laughs> there is a pay difference, but just pretend there wasn't. And then just ask yourself, imagine what your, um, imagine what your career will look like with the fellowship and what it will look like without. And then decide if that career with the fellowship is something that is more appealing to you, that you think you'll be more fulfilled, then you probably should do it. Right. Because and it's maybe not true for everyone. I, I totally get that some folks are supporting their entire family and they really can't um, do it without that. But I think for uh, for a lot of people, 40 years down the road when you uh, retire, it's unlikely that you're going to have incredible regrets that you didn't go into practice one year earlier. It's possible, but unlikely. So you really, I think, should say, listen, which is the career path I want? And then don't let the money decide unless you absolutely have to. Uh, And for some people, that is the case. Um, All right. Uh, Now, we don't have Dr. Wang with us um, from our chronic pain fellowship, but um, Phil, I think he may have passed on a couple notes to you.
3: Yeah. So um, the the comments from our chronic pain uh, program director, Dr. Wang, basically said that um, his experience is similar to what's happening nationally, which is that there's a decrease in the number of applicants. And if you look at the numbers, it's about three and a half percent. But the interesting thing about pain medicine is that fellowships are not exclusive to anesthesia residency. Uh, You can get uh, to chronic pain through PMR, neurology, psych, ER, and family medicine. And so what we may be seeing is a decrease in the number of anesthesia applicants, but uh, a proportionate increase in the number of applicants from other pathways. And so, uh, for anesthesia, um, trained folks with the job market being so great, um, pain medicine and going into pain medicine for, you know, partially a salary gain is, is not as much of a thing now. And so, um, although, you know, they're seeing a decrease, it seems to be the smallest of all fellowships.
2: Great. And, you know, I think we can probably answer the question for Eric in terms of, you know, I can't imagine anybody without a pain fellowship is going and doing, working in a chronic pain clinic doing, you know, cervical epidural steroid injections and spinal cord stimulator implants, right? I mean, that's just, I, I think you absolutely must do a fellowship if you want to do those things. Now, I could be wrong, but that's certainly, I think, would be my guess about that. Um, all right. So this has been, I think, really great, a really nice overview of the different fellowships and why one might think about them. Does anyone have anything to add that we didn't get to in your individual piece? All right. So let's turn to the portion of our show where we make random recommendations. And because there are six of us, we'll be fast and we can put links to whatever it is in the show notes. Um, so I'm just going to go in the order that you're on my screen here. So, Phil, what do you got for the audience?
3: Dinosaurs Rediscovered by Michael Benton. You ever like dinosaurs, see what we know about them in 2022, 2023. Is it a book? It's a book. It just uses modern day science to uh, to look at fossils and, and to say, that, hey, this is what dinosaurs looked like. And this is what we know about, you know, extinction and all that stuff.
2: Very cool. All right. Meg.
4: Um, if you are interested in cardiac fellowship, um, please uh, look at joining the Society for Cardiovascular Anesthesiologists. It's our national um Uh, group. Uh, We have annual meetings. We encourage residents and fellows to present at these meetings. Uh, We've also developed recently a lot of online education through SCA University. So there's a discounted rate for residents and fellows to join, and please look
7: into it. Thank you, guys.
2: Awesome. All right. Jillian?
7: Uh, Sure. The book, it's called Less. That's the title, L-E-S-S, by Andrew Shongrier. It won the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction in like 2017, 2018, someone around there. It's just a beautiful book about Growing older, what it's like to be getting older and love.
2: <laughs> nice. Love it. Awesome. All right, Kara.
6: Um, I'll stay with the book theme here. Um, I am in a book club. I don't know how that happened. I must have gotten older. <laughs> And I was it's my job to uh, pick the book this month, which is like my favorite October. So I picked um, a spooky book or hopefully spooky. It's called the Thursday murder club by Richard Osman. It was a New York times bestseller and Steven Spielberg's turning it into a movie. So um, I'm hoping it's good.
2: It is. I've read it. Fa- fabulous. Really fun. Oh, good. Um, all right, Mike. So one book I really
5: enjoyed reading uh, is good to great. It's by Jim Collins. Uh, basically, it's about uh, several uh, CEOs who took their companies from being good to great. And it was a story about how people uh, just stuck to their, uh, their dreams. Uh, they were very, um, they overcame obstacles and were very driven and focused. And that's true for medicine.
2: Awesome. Thanks, Mike. And I will recommend a book and I, you know, I feel bad because I can't remember if I've already done this one as a random recommendation. So listeners, I'm sorry if I'm repeating, but it is called, uh, it's a series a a sci-fi fantasy series called Red Rising. Some of my residents recommended it and I read the initial trilogy and now I'm reading the second kind of follow-up trilogy. Um, it's really good, really interesting and highly recommend you check it out. All right. PDs, you guys are awesome. Thank you for all the work you do and for coming on the show. Uh, Have a wonderful day. Thanks for being here. All right. Hopefully you got as much out of that as I did. That was really fantastic. Let us know what you thought. Go to the website, akrak.com, where you can leave a comment. Others can learn from what you have to say. If you are a fan of the show, you can follow us. We're on Twitter. We are on Facebook. We are on Reddit. And we are on Instagram. I'm at Jay Walpaw on Twitter, and we're at ACRAC Podcast, and you can find us on all those other platforms as well. If you are a fan of the show, please consider going to Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and leaving a comment and a rating. It really helps others find the show. If you'd like to support the making of the show, please consider going to patreon.com/acrac, that's p a t r e o n.com/acrac, where you can become a patron of the show. Even if it's just a dollar or two that you pledge, it makes a big difference and we really appreciate it. You can also make donations anytime by going to paypal.me/acrac or looking up Jay Walpa on Venmo. Thank you so much to those who have already made donations and become patrons, we really appreciate it. Thanks, as always, to our fantastic ACRAC crew. Dr. Brian Park is our tech lead. Sonia Amanat and Sophia Wu are our social media managers. Drs. April Liu, Chris Reese, and Edison Jiang are our production assistants. Thank you so much for all that you do. Our original ACRAC music is by Dr. Dennis Kuo. You can check out his website at studymusicproject.com. All right. That is it for today. For the ACRAC podcast, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Thanks for listening. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued.
0: At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward.